Western Carolina University political scientist Chris Cooper, good to have you back. Great to be here as always. Finally, we have a ballot that mm-hmm. seems to be finalized. Now, is it finalized? Or are we going to see any changes? We should. I mean, I hate to say absolutely, but we should not see any changes. We should finally, as of today, have uh, an actual ballot. Okay, great. So uh, now that we have the ballots finalized, let's take a look at what's mm-hmm. going to be on the ballot. I think maybe at the top, in terms of uh, importance, you might say, mm-hmm. state Supreme Court race. Mm-hmm. We've got sure. uh, an incumbent, Barbara Jackson, running. She's a Republican. She's going to have a Democratic opponent. Mm-hmm. And she also has a Republican opponent, although that's arguable. That's right. So tell us about that race. Yeah. So this guy, Chris Anglin, and the, the, the question has been, which party can he run from, right? And so the, the Republican Party has said he is essentially a wolf in sheep's clothing, that he is just in this race to try to take away Republican votes and to get a Democratic candidate elected. He said, no, that's not it. I'm, I'm a legitimate candidate. And ultimately, uh, he won. Yeah. So he, uh, the Republican legislature passed a law after he basically mm-hmm. filed and said, you know, he switched his party affiliation three weeks before Election mm-hmm. Day. Uh, to a Republican so that he would siphon votes away from the Republican incumbent That's because right. uh, there are going to be two names on a ba- on the ballot right now with R's next to their name mm-hmm. and one with a D next to their name. Now, in his telling of it, the Republicans themselves opened the door for this when they made the races partisan. Mm-hmm. And he said that they can't just change the rules after the fact mm-hmm. to single him out. So I think he is really st- to what he would call the letter of the law, which is he has every right to run, he's a legitimate candidate, and he is a choice that voters should be allowed to have. Some see him as sort of a dark horse candidate. Mm -hmm. The incumbent Barbara Jackson is running against Anita Earls. Mm -hmm. Right now we have a Supreme Court four to three split, I believe, uh, Democrats over Republicans. If Anita Earls was to win, this would shift it over to a five to two. What are the implications of control of the Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, they're huge, right? I mean, uh, most of the things that we talk about and care about from the levers of power kind of policy, disagreements like uh, gerrymandering and redistricting, all the way down to really every part of civic life. I mean, if you have a Supreme Court that leans one way or the other, um, you're going to end up having policy that leans one way or the other. This is the same fight that we're seeing right now in Washington over Brett Kavanaugh. It's just um, really in some ways amplified, actually, at the state level. Yeah, and uh, the courts have been a pretty consistent check on the Republican legislature, it has seemed. They have, and and I think um, it's one of the few places where the Democrats have been able to exert any power, and, and the governor in particular, right? So every time Governor Cooper wants to get anything done, he can't really go to the general assembly to get that done. And so he has taken to the courts frequently. And at least sometimes that has worked in his favor. Okay, so also on the ballot, Mm -hmm. uh, six amendments. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a lot of contention about whether or not these would be on the ballot, how they are worded. Let's just set that aside, Mm -hmm. because now we know we've got six amendments that people will be voting on. And let's take them one by one. Okay, so we've got a voter ID amendment. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this one. Yeah, so this is, um, you may remember a few years ago, the General Assembly uh, proposed this bill that people later called the Monster Bill, right? So it had, I believe it was 22 separate provisions. Voter ID was kind of the headline issue, but it had all sorts of other things like changing the way we did early voting, changing whether you could vote on a, do early voting on a Sunday, changing pre-registration for high school students. Um, and ultimately, uh, that was struck down, right? The court said, look, you, you can't do this. You've gone too far, essentially. So the Republican General Assembly has now said, fine, we're going to give the voters a very clean voter ID only 
constitutional amendment. And so what's on the ballot is whether we should be able to have voter ID before somebody's allowed to vote. If we were to vote yes as a state, it then gives the General Assembly the power to write the specifics of that. Is it a photo ID? Is it not a photo ID? What do we accept? What do we not accept? All those kinds of questions. Right. And that's where the Democrats are saying, look, you're telling the state of North Carolina to vote on this. They don't even know the details of it yet. Now, that's exactly right. I think that's the the crux of the issue, right? So the Republicans are saying, hey, look, We've been talking about this for years. Let's give the people a chance to decide. And the Democrats are saying, hey, it's not really clear what the people are deciding on. Which forms of ID are going to be accepted? Will it be student IDs? We don't know. Will it discriminate against students, as the Democrats say that the previous law did by not allowing student IDs, that sort of thing? Okay, so that's one uh, amendment. That's voter ID. We've got the income tax cap. Mm -hmm. So currently, our tax rate is Mm 5.499%. That would be unchanged because the cap would be lowered from 10 to 7 percent. So we're talking about somewhat of a hypothetical situation right now. Mm -hmm. But basically, we could not raise the tax rate above 7 percent. What are the implications of that if that's approved? Yeah, In the short run, I don't think there's a lot. Right. So as you said, our income tax rate is is essentially five and a half percent right now. There is a state cap on 10. So nobody can raise it beyond 10. This would be saying, let's not be able to raise it beyond seven. So in the short run, there's clearly not very much implication, right? My tax bill, your tax bill is not going to change in the next year. If we see a massive change in who's in charge, we see a massive change in the economy, it will hinder the ability of the General Assembly and the state to raise the tax rate any higher than 7%. Now, what would that mean? So if the tax rate can't be raised above 7%, does that mean that local government's hands are tied? Does that mean that they have to raise taxes locally? Do they have to raise sales taxes? What 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 happens? Yeah, obviously, there's lots of ways to raise funds and certainly local taxes. Um, uh, we can do all sorts of different things with local taxes and hotel taxes and all the kinds of things that we're familiar with when we pay our bills. But this is the, just the state income tax, right? So all sorts of other things can happen. Your tax bill could change in myriad of other ways. But we would not be able to raise the state income tax past seven. And again, it's worth noting it's five and a half right now. Okay. The third amendment that we have changes to the elections board. Mm -hmm. This seems really significant to me because right now we've got an elections board that's made up of nine members. There's one unaffiliated member and there's four from each party. Mm -hmm. This would eliminate the ninth member and they would be four against four, Mm -hmm. which seems to me a recipe for deadlock. It is a recipe for deadlock in, in a lot of ways. And I think you add to that that um, the second largest group of North Carolina voters are unaffiliated. They actually choose neither party. And so there's a lot of questions about how those folks will be represented. There's also questions about third parties. Um, so this is – a lot of folks view this as another way in which the General Assembly is trying to take some power from the governor's office, obviously controlled right now by Democrat Roy Cooper. Yeah, and that's what this would also do. It mm-hmm. would take away the power from Governor Roy Cooper to make these appointments and give it to the Republican-controlled legislature. Mm-hmm. So kind of just more of that battle we've been seeing over the years. That's right. I mean, these are all little skirmishes in this larger war of who controls the levers of power in North Carolina government. Is it the General Assembly? Is it the executive branch? Is it the courts? And now I've heard, Chris, also that 
when there is a tie on this elections board, that this may be a way of limiting early voting because they've said basically that, you know, if you have a, a deadlock on early voting, then basically like if you're trying to set voting hours, mm-hmm. then basically if there's a tie, it reverts to the lowest. Mm-hmm. Basically, like counties would only be able to offer early voting from the board of elections in the county, mm-hmm. not 10 sites like we have in Buncombe County, I mm-hmm. believe. Is that right? No, I think that is right. I mean, so essentially, if there's a deadlock, you don't get the change is maybe a different way to look at it. I see. Um, and so, yeah, it is uh, – look, these are really consequential decisions that – I mean, it's the very nature of a constitutional amendment. It could affect the state for years or decades to come. Yes. Okay. So, okay, when we've also got changes to judicial appointments, mm-hmm. this is another battle between Governor Cooper and the legislature. So right. the legislature wants to take the power away from Cooper to make judicial appointments – Pretty consequential there as well. Yeah, absolutely. So this is about people who don't fill their term, right? Mm -hmm. So this is if a judge passes away, if a judge resigns, or if a judge is kicked out of office while uh, before their term is up, who gets to put in the replacement? Right now, the governor gets to put in the replacement. This constitutional amendment would create this new kind of complex system, really, where there would be a commission made up of a few folks, they would give a list to the General Assembly. The General Assembly would then take that list and narrow it down to two names, give that two names to the governor. The governor would choose between those two names and those two names only. So it gives the kind of agenda-setting power to the General Assembly instead of to the governor. So that's a lot already, and we've yes, got two more. That's exactly we've right. We've got— uh, Confused yet? Yeah. <laughs> Hunting and fishing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Why is this on the ballot? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, right? So this would make it a constitutional right to hunt or fish, and there's a, there's actually some really interesting things about this constitutional amendment. First of all, 21 other states currently have this, mm-hmm. and in 20 of those states, it was brought up by constitutional amendment. So this is a believe it or not, a battle that's kind of happening across the country. The NRA has said, hey, the National Rifle Association has said. We need to do this. We need to guarantee this right to hunt and fish and harvest public lands to make sure this is not taken away. They actually have some sample language on their website. The sample language looks strikingly similar to what we're seeing in North Carolina. So it wouldn't change really much of anything today. It's kind of like the uh, income tax constitutional amendment where it is a a hedge against future change. I see. So – I guess we can't really say this for sure, but did this originate from the NRA? And I don't know where it originated. It's definitely been echoed by the NRA. The NRA has taken this on as a cause, and it makes sense, Mm -hmm. right? The NRA is about protecting uh, gun rights. And Mm -hmm. so this is their way of saying if it is constitutionally enshrined that you have these rights, then somebody's less likely to take them away. I see. Now, the last amendment, uh, Marcy's Law, mm-hmm. or the Sixth Amendment, I should say, mm-hmm. Marcy's Law, this would give additional rights to victims of crime. Mm-hmm. What would this amendment do? Yeah, so it, it gives sort of different notification rights to the victims of a crime and their family, right? So if somebody is under trial or if somebody's released, it it sort of enshrines those in our constitution. This is another case too of something that may seem very specific. It's got this very specific name, right? But um, this is actually in place in lots and lots of states. And this has also been a national movement. There is, there are a series of interest groups around victims' rights and they tend to be pushing these bills. We're even seeing similar wording in other states here as well. What would be the arguments against this? I think that it's 
one, is this appropriate to be a constitutional amendment, right? So you have the whether this is good policy question, and then you have the question of whether this should just be something passed out of the General Assembly, or if this really needs to be enshrined in our Constitution that's been amended 37 times since its passage in 1971. So I think that's part of it. And the other one is that it's um, about the victims and not necessarily about the defendants, right? I mean, you've got obviously multiple parties in a case, and this is putting the uh, kind of benefits on one side versus the other. I see. Okay. So Democrats have tried to sort of simplify their argument Mm -hmm. by saying just nix all six. That's their campaign slogan. So Mm -hmm. they're asking people to just vote them down. That's right. Republicans want voters to approve all six. Mm -hmm. Do you have any predictions for how people are going to respond to these? We have some clues. Elon University just put out um, a poll, um, I believe it was yesterday Mm -hmm. or the day before, um, where they actually just asked folks some questions on two of these in particular, right? So that gives us some clues. And what's interesting about the way they did their poll, instead of just calling somebody on a phone and saying, hang on, I'll read you some ballot language, they actually had people opt in on their computers, And so they actually were able to read and comprehend the ballot language. And what they found was the voters uh, tended to like voter ID. I think 63% of people said, yes, I support this voter ID bill. The income tax cap, which they also asked about, was also uh, at fairly high levels of approval. So I think we would expect passage on most of these. Um, About 87% of the time, amendments do pass. And so it's uh, part of the the strategic, uh, the calculation, the Republican General Assembly probably put these things on on the ballot because they thought they would pass, right? Hunting and fishing doesn't seem particularly controversial. Marcy's law doesn't seem as controversial. The voter ID, I think, is likely to pass. Income tax is likely to pass. So that leaves the crux with these two about who has the power in North Carolina. And those two, I'm a lot less certain what's going to happen. The language on those is um, confusing. Uh, they're kind of confusing bills. It's the real details. It's the wonky stuff. And I'm not sure how voters are going to react. You also have every governor, the current and former who's alive, who's come out against those two amendments that would take power from the governor and give it to the General Assembly. So those, it's a little bit less clean on which party supports and doesn't support, right? You actually have Roy Cooper and Pat McCrory, two people who don't agree on really much of anything, are coming together and saying, hey, these have gone too far. Right. And I believe uh, living former chief justices as well have come out against those two. Is that right? The two or the judicial appointments one? Uh, I I think it's both of those. So the the judicial appointments one, certainly the justices have. I believe the justices have on the other. And I'm certain that the governors have come out um, against both of those changes. So those are the two that I think um, uh, we'll just kind of see how they go. The other four seem likely to pass, although certainly no guarantee. Those two, I'm not really sure what's going to happen. Now, we haven't even gotten to races to watch, and we're not there yet because we had this congressional ruling, uh, ruling on gerrymandering. So once again, North Carolina's congressional map has been ruled unconstitutional, a partisan gerrymander that went too far. But We're not going to see any changes by November. Mm -hmm. This seems to me just mind boggling Mm -hmm. that and it must be mind boggling for the voters of North Carolina to just, first of all, just not understanding what is going on. And I think that there could be this real danger that we keep seeing these are unconstitutional districts. Why should I go vote then? 
Yeah. What What do you think? I think that's absolutely right. Right. So the um, sort of efficacy towards the process, right, the degree to which people feel that their vote is counted, their vote is counted fairly. I think we're going to expect to see that decline. Um, so what the court has said this time is, yeah, these districts are unconstitutional. But it's too late to change it. And interestingly, both sides have kind of said, you know what, I think it is too late to change it. So Mm -hmm. it's setting up once again a huge fight in the U.S. Supreme Court um, come next term. And so the idea is the new battleground is going to move to 2020. Right. And the Supreme Court, of course, is going to be a five to four split if Mm -hmm. Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed a five to four split in favor of conservatives. Mm-hmm. We were talking not long before the retirement of Anthony Kennedy, assuming that he would be the swing vote on this issue. Mm-hmm. He's gone. Yeah. And so a lot of what we said before just doesn't even matter anymore. No, that's right. I yeah. mean, the Supreme Court's such a small group of people. One change yeah. is, is a huge deal. So if, you, um, if you're feeling like Groundhog Day here, we can go back briefly. And so the there's sort of two ways in which district lines are challenged based on race, essentially, and based on partisanship. This is a partisanship case. The previous partisanship case was out of the state of Wisconsin, um, the Gill versus Whitford case that got brought to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court essentially said, you know what, you may be right, you may be wrong, but you don't have standing to sue. Okay, so the North Carolina case then comes along, and instead of an individual suing, it's these groups. It's the Democratic Party, it's illegal women voters, it's common cause. And so the court in North Carolina says, hey, these groups actually do have standing to sue. And because they have standing to sue, we can weigh in on this. And we're weighing in and saying that these are illegal. They've gone too far. A 10-3 is too much of a difference for a state that is fairly close to 50-50. But again, we're not going to do anything about it this cycle. So we're going to go ahead and vote in these districts that we have just deemed illegal. So this battle is now uh, heading to the U.S. Supreme Court is Mm -hmm. what you're saying. Seems likely. Yes. Do they have a shot? Sure. They absolutely have a shot. You know, and I don't think anybody understands, um, you know, what Kavanaugh's take is on gerrymandering on a redistricting. I mean, these are... um, really complicated issues. I think everybody would agree there is something called gerrymandering that goes too far. The question is, how do you determine beforehand what is too far? Right. Okay. And uh, we would talk about Kennedy being the swing vote Mm -hmm. before. I've heard people say now the swing vote may be John Roberts, Mm -hmm. Chief Justice. Um, He called the Wisconsin case, the, the what, what was it called again? Sociological gobbledygook. Soci, sociological gobbledygook. But what was the what was it that he was calling oh, that? The, I'm sorry, the efficiency gap. Yeah, the efficiency gap. Yeah. Right. So he called the efficiency gap a sociological gobbledygook, which is just one <laughs> of these tests that we have, right? So yeah. there's a series of different tests that you can apply to try to say, hey, what's gone too far? Yeah. The efficiency gap was one of them. Justice Roberts said, this is sociological gobbledygook. So do we think that Roberts could be convinced by a different method? I think that's certainly possible, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think we don't know exactly uh, what's going to be the evidence is going to convince him. The North Carolina case appears to me to be less dependent on one measure. So mm-hmm. the efficiency gap really was the measure that seemed to be the key to Wisconsin. North Carolina has got um, some different measures. So they do these computer simulations mm-hmm. and all sorts of other types of metrics. And so the North Carolina case is throwing more tests essentially at the court saying, hey, do you buy one of these? 
if you buy any of them, this has gone too far. I see. Okay. Now, the last time we spoke, uh, we were prognosticating about the blue wave. Mm -hmm. The blue wave seems to be real based on special elections that we've seen, polling, which, of course, you have to take with a grain of salt, but Democrats seem more energized. Has the landscape changed at all when we look yeah. at Western North Carolina in terms of the 11th and the 10th congressional races? Yeah, not much. Not I mean, much. certainly, um, you know, there's a reason you play the game in football. There's a reason you hold the election in politics. Anything can happen. Um, but these would be, uh, if the 10th or the 11th flipped, it would be among the uh, biggest surprises in this country come November. Wow. Okay. Interesting. So there are a couple of uh, congressional seats in North Carolina that are being heavily contested. Mm -hmm. uh, one out of Charlotte, one closer to Wake County, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, That's correct. And, and they do seem to be showing uh, Democratic momentum, mm -hmm. at least in terms of polling. Mm -hmm. Do a couple of seats flip, do you think? It, it's possible, right? Yeah. So the ninth and the 13th are the two that everybody thinks are um, are competitive, right? So any of these kind of national prognosticators, they're all looking at, at the ninth and the 11th. So the ninth is the one that's a little bit kind of Charlotte and East. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the, the 13th is one that's kind of Greensboro Southwest, I guess. And they're both nationally prominent races. I think it's certainly possible that they could flip. And that's why their challenges of the two, the ninth seems more likely to flip. The Republican candidate has not made a lot of friends lately. There's been some um, comments that he's made in the past, particularly about women that have been highlighted nationally and don't look particularly good for him. Um, but they're toss ups for a reason. I mean, we really don't know what's going to happen here. It's true. The polling, particularly in the ninth, has been better for the Democratic candidate, but the polling has been really sparse in both races. In other words, there's not right. a lot of polls, so I don't have a lot of faith in them. The one thing I have some faith in is that they're both going to be really, really close. They're going to be close. And that points to the blue wave, does mm -hmm. it? That that alone, because these are conservative districts. They are. So the we talk about um, districts as being R plus something or D plus something, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is an R plus six district and an R plus eight district. And so what that means is, hey, we would expect the Republicans to do better um, by a pretty good magnitude, really, in both districts, all else being equal. And so all else is clearly not equal this time. Mm -hmm. um, I think there probably will be some blue wave. I don't know how high of a wave it's going to be. Mm -hmm. um, part of that is momentum, and it is fundraising and things like that. It's also the president's party tends to not do well in the second year of his first term. Um, so if we think about 1994, where the Republicans had this massive takeover, part of that was the way Newt Gingrich packaged things and all sorts of other national forces. It was also partly we were in the second year of Bill Clinton's first term. Mm -hmm. And that is a, a trend we've seen throughout American history. We don't know, of course, but judging from what you've looked at, it looks like all signs point to a pretty safe election for the two Republican congressmen here in Western North Carolina. Now, if a blue wave does occur mm -hmm. uh, on the state level, state legislators, mm -hmm. which Republicans need to be worried if that does come to pass? So the uh, you know one in Western North Carolina we can look at is the 119th district. So this is represented by a guy named uh, Mike Clampett. And so Mike Clampett is in his first term. Um, he's running against a, a guy named Joe Sam Queen. And if he sounds familiar, he should. Uh, Joe Sam Queen was in the state Senate, lost that seat. He ran for the state house, 
ran against Mike Clampett a number of times. Mike Clampett was not successful. And then finally in the last round, Mike Clampett was barely successful. And so um, this is a race that I think we all expect to be tight. There's no public polling that's taken place. Um, it's a fairly rural district, um, but that is certainly one where a Republican candidate could lose. We expect that to be a, a very close race, and it's getting some statewide attention. And frankly, I think it should probably get more statewide attention. I see. Okay, so we've got that race. Um, what about some of those names that we may not have been talking about where this expected momentum for Democrats not be? Are there more names that are emerging onto that list, do you think? Yeah, it's hard to know exactly which ones. And, and part of that's the nature of, of General Assembly or state legislative races is that we just we don't have much polling. Right. So it's sure. hard to know. We do know in general the Democrats are doing uh, a good job raising money. And that is one of the early signs that we have. Um, we know that the Democrats are actually contesting races, which may sound like a silly metric. But in the last round, 46% of our state legislative seats were unopposed. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that we are actually competitive, Democrats and Republicans in each district, is a big deal. Whether the Democrats can take over the majority, it seems it seems unlikely. That would be a huge blue wave if the Democrats took over our General Assembly. I think the question is whether they can break the supermajority in at least one of the chambers. The House seems like the more likely place to break that supermajority. And so the kind of... The first battlefield, I would argue, is our lower house of our General Assembly and the supermajority. Then it would be the upper house of our General Assembly and the supermajority. Then we could start having a conversation about the majority being up for grabs. Yeah. Now, in Buncombe County, I would say that there's two races that I I would be looking at, Mm -hmm. regardless of what the election was, uh, but that would be the race with John Ager Mm -hmm. and Brian Turner. Exactly. Um, uh, So those two Democrats uh, would be in tough elections and, and are in tough elections. Absolutely. So those two races, ones to look at. Also looking at, what about Michelle Presnell, a Republican in Burnsville? Um, right. She won her last election, she not did. by a huge margin, I don't no, believe. No, it was not by a huge margin. So it's one of those kind of um, peripheral races to watch, mm-hmm, I think. I'm mm-hmm. not seeing it on a lot of folks' list of kind of the, the first tier of races to watch. It's certainly in the second tier. Okay. And I think if there's a large blue wave, I think we could definitely see that uh, that race flip. And I think the two Democrats you highlighted are really good examples. Brian Turner, for example, is uh, the Democrat who I believe holds the most Republican-leaning seat in the General Assembly held by a Democrat. In other words, if you just looked at the kind of partisanship of the district, he'd be the first Democrat to be likely to go. And that John Ager seat, you're right, has been a very uh, tight seat in the last few elections. So if history is any guide, that's another one to watch pretty closely. I see. What about some of the Senate races like um, we've got uh, Chuck Edwards running mm-hmm. against Norm Bossert? Mm-hmm. Um that seemed to be a pretty big landslide in favor of Chuck Edwards in the That's last right. election, but that was a pretty good election for Republicans. Uh, does It was. Uh, what about this time around? It, yeah, that was a great election for Republicans in general. Mm-hmm. I think that's another one where it's a very Republican-leaning district, so mm-hmm. anything can happen. If it's a big blue wave, maybe that's one that falls, but we wouldn't. Uh, it wouldn't be the first one that fell. In other words, if uh, if that one goes Democrat— then I think we may be looking at a, a really big blue wave and, and the kind of thing that changes the state fundamentally. And this is a hard question to answer, but how much do national politics, how much does Donald Trump play into these smaller races that are, you know, typically, you know, based more around local issues? Yeah, no, there's um, really good evidence that 
that the national political landscape increasingly matters at lower offices, right? So the term we use is nationalization. And we know that state legislative races are increasingly nationalized. In other words, the opinion of Donald Trump affects a state legislative race more now than the opinion of, say, Ronald Reagan did a state legislative race in the 1980s. So it absolutely matters. Um, We're even seeing this in the types of mailers and the types of advertisements that candidates are putting out. Um, We used to say that all politics is local. At this point, we flip that on its head. All politics really is national. I see. And that seems to me maybe not a great development. Yeah, I think it depends on your perspective, certainly. But it's... um, What it means, I think, is that your political ideology and your partisanship are more in alignment. So it's easier to make these big decisions, say, hey, I'm a liberal or I'm a or I'm a conservative. Therefore, I like party X or party Y, whereas it used to be hey, in the late 70s. If you were a liberal, you could vote for a Republican candidate sometimes. If you're a conservative, you could certainly vote for a Democratic candidate in the South for a long time. Mm -hmm. So part of it is this bigger national realignment we've seen. Part of it is the media environment, too. We're just paying more attention to national politics. It's easy to pay attention to national politics. Yeah. It's uh, you got to work a little harder. You got to listen to really smart radio stations to learn more about uh, state and local politics. Well, let's dumb it down a little bit and talk <laughs> national politics. <laughs> so we've had the Brett Kavanaugh yeah. hearings going on. Uh, have you seen anything during the hearings that would change the overriding, I think, opinion from people that this guy's going to get through? No, he's 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 going to get through unless something you know radical is. Uh, by radical, I mean something just we can't even imagine uh, gets revealed, right? And so we've mm-hmm. we've changed the goal line. If the goal line was sixty votes, no, I think we've got a real fight in our hands. Goal line's fifty-one votes. Brett Kavanaugh should be confirmed. The question is, how much kind of damage to his reputation does he take and how much damage to the reputation of the courts does it does it take? I see. An interesting question for me is we have these senators, Bob Corker, Jeff Flake, you know, you've Susan Collins. You've got these senators who have been on the record before with real concerns about President Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a Supreme Court nominee who is. We're not really quite sure what he thinks about indicting a president, subpoenaing a president. Why does that not rise to the level of concern? Or we don't know, I guess. The vote hasn't taken place. But nobody's basically said from that group, core group of people, like, this is a real concern for me. No, I don't think so. And I think part of it is there's so many more issues the court deals with. And, And I think because Supreme Court justices get a lifetime appointment, um, it makes some sense that a, a conservative member of Congress might not like his answers on presidential power, but is going to realize that Donald Trump's not going to be president forever. And uh, Brett Kavanaugh won't be on the Supreme Court forever, but it'll be forever as far as most of our lives are concerned, right? We're talking about decades. So I think if you're looking forward and you're a Republican and you tend to support conservative policies, then Kavanaugh makes some sense. Kavanaugh was also very closely aligned to um, George W. Bush. And so even if you're on kind of the more what we used to call establishment side of the Republican Party, Kavanaugh's a good candidate there, too. So I think um, in some ways, Donald Trump threaded the Republican needle fairly well on this. It's really hard to make a sense of all the chaos in the White House right mm-hmm. now. We've got the Bob Woodward book and this anonymous op-ed in the New York Times. Uh, how do you process all of this at the end of the week, a week like we've had? Yeah, it's uh, 
sleepless nights. That's how I process it. But um, it's difficult, right? So like everybody else, I've got the um, the Bob Woodward book on pre-order from my favorite local bookstore, um, and I'm waiting to read that and to delve into it. The anonymous op-ed, I mean, I think Trump's response to the anonymous op-ed is as interesting as the op-ed itself. Um, and I think I try to remind myself that um, – this is not normal. I mean, this really is an unusual way to govern a country. And I think we all need to remind ourselves, regardless of our partisan stripes, that this level of chaos is is not normal and it's not good. And if you like Donald Trump's policies, um, the, the chaos that has surrounded Trump, whether it's his fault or not, is not a good thing really for the functioning of democracy. And I, I think, you know, when we talk about chaotic presidencies uh, everybody points to nixon sure how similar to that episode is this you know it's it's uh it is similar in some ways i think um nixon was more closely aligned with the what i would call establishment politics though right i mean here's a guy who had served in office before had you know made no secret his entire life of his desire to be a public servant um i think it's it's Different. Um, I think Trump is much better at a, getting our attention than Nixon ever was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think attention at this point is the one non-renewable resource in American politics, right? You can essentially create more money if you're running for office. Uh, you, can, you can raise more money. Our attention is a finite resource, increasingly so. And I think Trump has done a masterful job whether you want to call it manipulating or whether you want to call it managing our attention span. And so I think Trump has adapted to this new environment. Um, so in that way, I think he's different than Nixon, although certainly there are some parallels. I see. Do you think that Trump is uh, purposeful in these things? Or is it kind of like in the op-ed where they say, you know, he's just impulsive. He just yeah. flies off the handle. Or is there some master manipulation taking place? I don't I don't think it's a master manipulation mm-hmm. in the 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 management of the White House. I don't see that. Um, I do think he has, again, an instinct for how to manage attention. I don't think it is, um, and I think there's pretty good evidence to to back this up, that when he tweets, uh, it's with a purpose, right? He is able to draw our attention to, and more importantly, from things he does not want us to pay attention to. Um, and so whether that's a larger war or kind of a, an individual battle strategy, I'm not sure. But I think there is certainly a piece of it that's strategic. We've got these incredibly important hearings going on for Brett Kavanaugh. At the mm-hmm. same time, we've got the Woodward book. We've got this op-ed, this anonymous op-ed, which draws our attention. Does the administration want us watching the hearings? Does the administration want us not focused on the hearings, but focused on something else? You know, I don't know what they want. I think there's some benefit to having us not watch the hearings, right? I mean, these hearings are tough. I think imagine any person sitting up there and answering hard questions for multiple days from very, very smart people. You're going to have some parts of your life exposed that that you're not real comfortable with. I see. So I think, um, look, Kavanaugh is extremely likely to get confirmed. The less attention on the individual details of that the probably the better for the White House, I would argue. I see. Okay. Yeah, because it's interesting because on NPR the other day, it was like a surrogate for the White House basically talking about the op-ed. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, the interviewer came around and said, we've got a few 
few minutes, let me ask you about the Kavanaugh hearings. And the guy said, please. Yeah. You know, but I'm wondering, you know, would they rather be talking about this this op-ed? I mean, I don't know. Maybe not the op-ed, but I think something else, right? I think there's a, uh, you know, and and Trump is— done uh, what a lot of politicians do, which is the economy is going well. And so he gets to to draw attention to the economy. I think that's really where he would like our attention mm-hmm. is on um, is on his issues, right? I mean, politics is more about drawing somebody's attention to the issues that you care about and the public cares about than convincing somebody you're right. And so I think there's a third set of issues that the Trump White House would benefit. We we're talking about if it were neither the op-ed nor the Kavanaugh hearings. I see. All right. Well, Chris Cooper, always good to talk to you. Yeah. We'll, we'll have you back soon, I'm sure. Thanks. Yeah. Good to see you.